Now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. Welcome to episode 31. Take it to the max. We are Martin Packer, somewhere out in the field with lots of lovely customers around the world I'm working with right now. Oh, sounds great. And I am Marna Wally in lovely Poughkeepsie office working in ZOS Development Organization. So, Martin, where have you been lately? Well, travel is still few and far between, but the last trip out was to share in Dallas, which was back in late March. Yeah, and it was great. I finally got to see you in person after so many years. It was great to, to see you there and actually very great to get to a live conference, my first one in person for oh, years. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and there was an awful lot of hugging and people were really pleased to see each other, I think, which seems to be a common feature of these early recovery conferences and of some very good sessions. So Sharon Dallas was great. And then I had the privilege of staying with you and family in near Poughkeepsie, not to give away your OPSEC too much. And we went into IBM Pixies, IBM Poughkeepsie for the day. IBM Pixies sounds so good, doesn't it? Anyway, tumble blew through it. I think we'll leave that one in. <laughs> yeah, so uh, when we came back, it was a little empty, and you know what? It's still a little empty, and I'm getting a little used to it. The parking lot, I can park right up front uh, for several months now. Well, at least I can say my first IBM location back was not in my home country. <laughs> not many people can say that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Right, so we have some follow-up. Yes, so we have officially announced the custom pack ISPF server pack removal date now that we have data set merge totally done. And we have splashed that all over the world, all over the internet. So if you don't know what the custom pack removal of server pack date is, it will affect ZOS and all subsystems, all server packs. And that removal date is going to be July 10th, 2022. Now, fear not. CBPDO is still available. It's not being touched. But what this means is when the custom pack server pack is removed from shop Z, your only server pack option will be ZOSMF. So make sure that you're up and running on ZOSMF and you know how to use the server pack installation in ZOSMF. So we've also got a very exciting follow-up as well is the dataset file system APAR OA62150 was released. So now you can start treating within the ZOS Unix shell. You can manipulate datasets as if they were paths and files within Unix. So this is so exciting. And this was only available on ZOS 2.5. So this is one of those functions that we hope will entice you to get to ZOS 2.5. And actually, it's one we described at some length in the last episode, episode 30. Yeah, certainly is. And there's some exciting stuff in there and have had a lot of follow-on uh, requirements for it. So I think people are really wanting to jump on this. So the PTF was available on April 28, 2022. So if you're on ZOS 2.5, that might be something you want to immediately look at. So Martin, explain the title of the episode, Take It to the Max. It's something to do with mumble mumble after show. What after show? Moving along swiftly, let's talk about what's new. So the first and most obvious thing is C16, which undoubtedly will do some material on future episodes soon. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of great topics on the IBM Z16. Yep. Yep. 
Also, another new item. It's not related to a product, but it is re,、uh, related to enhancements that we take within IBM. So we're moving the request for enhancement RFE is now been moved into the AHA process, and these requests for enhancements are now called ideas. So we're trying to use both terms interchangeably. But if you hear us say, you know, submit an idea, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about putting it in AHA. That's a lovely idea. And now it's time for our mainframe topic. So what have we got this time, Anna? Yeah, we have something called ZMSC, and we wanted to talk about how important ZOSMF workflows are for this important topic. So let's start with what does ZMSC mean? Okay, because that's an acronym, and you know Martin and I were talking about is is what is the M part? Because we had a couple of options of the words, and I had actually forgotten what it was. So it stands for ZOS Management Services Catalog, and there you go. It pretty much says the whole thing. It allows you to manage services inside of a catalog, and of course you're going to do that. With ZOSMF, right? Because because what are what else do we have when we simplify things today? Is it's in ZOSMF? And we don't mean ICF catalog, do we? No, we absolutely do not. And there's a lot of things、uh, catalog is kind of used a lot, but this is really nice. So in the ZOSMF, a services catalog means something very specific, and you can manage, of course, that that services catalog. You could call that a directory, really, but of course that's overloaded as well. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I guess we. Yeah, there's so many words we could have had for this, but let's talk about what it is, right? So you can manage these services in a catalog in ZOSMF, but like I said before, you know, it really relies upon workflows, as so many things today rely upon workflows. So what you can do is you can really spiffy up and you can publish these ZOSMF workflows into a catalog that are services that you offer. So what you can do is you can identify your enterprise or your installations. I call them standards. It's the things that you want to do in your environment. You can encode them on top of a workflow. Call those a service and have an administrator of those services, and that administrator can say, "This is exactly the way I want to do things in this this enterprise. I'm going to encode on top of a workflow how to do that. I'm going to publish it as a service in the ZOSMF catalog, and then users can come in and run them." So. You can have the selection of these services from the catalog. You can encode them, like I said, on top of it. And this is why it's so important, and why we wanted to put it into this particular podcast because we wanted to talk about get your workflows ready, become familiar with workflows. I think a lot of people have become familiar with workflows, given that we've had the upgrade or the migration workflow forever. But now you can really take them to another level, make them a service, have an administrator. You know, publish them into these catalogs. Have the ability to identify users that can run these according to your standards. So this is what's so great about this function, and why I wanted to talk about it. But you might say, where am I going to get some of these workflow froms? Right? I'm I'm just a you know a enterprise that has a bunch of JCL jobs that I do today, and maybe I have to run them. I don't trust anybody else to run them, and I, people don't like to run my JCL jobs. How do I get started on this? 
And the whole idea is that IBM is going to provide today we have seven samples that we have published out there. Right, and these seven samples have gone through with customer validation, you know, just to make sure that these samples are useful and are important to you and do common things that you might want to do today. Of course, these are just samples. You can change them any way you want. You can go get other samples. You cannot use these if you want. But, you know, we've got a lot of handy-dandy samples that we've got provided. So I'm just going to, you know, chink through all of these that we've got a lot. Create a ZFS file system. Expand a ZFS file system. Mount a ZFS file system. Unmount a file system. Replace the very important SMPE receive order certificate, right? Because that only lasts a year. You need to do that quite often. Delete a RACF user ID and delete an alias from a catalog. Those are the seven samples that we have today. Right. Now, presumably before you actually deploy them, you need to adapt them to your local standards. Exactly. And and they may be coming into your environment pretty well. I mean, and you may say, gosh, I like these. These are okay. Or you may say, I don't like these at all. I don't want to use it. Or I want to change it significantly. That's what an administrator does before he publishes it into the catalog. He looks through it, moves it around, gives it some defaults, like let's say you're going to create a ZFS file system, you want the default to be 5 meg, fine, in your environment it can be 5 meg. You don't want it any bigger than 10 meg, fine, let the user pick. I got between 5 meg and 10 meg that I want it to be, right? So you can define all of those things in your service when you publish it as an admin, right? So we've, we've got some samples there. Do whatever you want to with them, but that's, you know, kind of how you would start off with this. Right. And the key term you've been using, which I know is in the write-up, is administrator. Yeah, I keep using that word. We have two roles in this, and guess what, you know, these ZOSMF roles entail is they require more security <laughs> profiles. So sorry about that, but you've got to have this within ZOSMF. So you have the definition of an administrator, somebody that can take a workflow, modify it, change it, define how they want it for the uh, installation, the enterprise. That would be the administrator. And then you also have users, and that would be the person that goes through the catalog and can run those services. So you have administrators and users. Those are two important roles for the management services catalog. Right. So you mentioned the seven samples we're providing right now. Are we going to add more? Of course. I mean, we all want more, right? Uh, ideally, at the beginning, we have ideas about, I don't know, about 30 more probably. But right now, we've only got the seven encoded and provided. But, you know, I, I'm sure over time, we'll add a bunch more. And you know what? It doesn't – you don't have to use always our samples. If you have a workflow um, that you love and has already been encoded by you, fine. Take that workflow. Let's make it a service into this catalog by, you know, just providing better defaults or other things that you might want to do within the the workflow itself to make it a service. You know, you can take your own workflow. You can bring it there. Or you know what else you could do? You could go out into the ecosystem, and we have something called Zorro out there, you know, the Z, Open Repository of Workflows. And you can go shopping. People have contributed workflows that they have. You might want to go look out there. See if there's a workflow that catches your eye. Say, you know what, I kind of need something like that in my environment. Grab that workflow, make a couple of changes that are working for your enterprise. Say, okay, as an admin, I want to make this now a service. 
bam, there you go. So as long as you've got a workflow, you've got something to work with in this ZOS management services catalog. So I think the word ecosystem is really quite handy here because I think I'd like to believe there are going to be lots of ways of getting hold of workflows and turning them into services. But I do have to ask, why do we have services as well as workflows? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, Sometimes, you know, there is a role for each of these things, right? Services can be more interactive a lot of times. Um, They can be more, let's say, restrictive as well as what you want to do. We can also put sometimes and encode uh, better uh, controls over those workflows so that they could be made a service. Uh, So, you know, you can limit who might want to be able to run it. If somebody can run a workflow, they could take pretty much any workflow and run it. But we may be able to, you know, limit who wants to run services that are rather limited. So each one of these things has a particular use case for it, right? Workflows and services as well. So I think the key point in all this is installations are going to get more and more dependent on workflows, right? Because without them, this, none of this management services catalog stuff actually happens. Exactly, exactly. And we know that workflows is the most popular thing that is used in ZOSMF based on the you know annual survey that we've done. Everybody's using workflows. And we know everything uses workflows today. ZCX uses workflow. The upgrade process uses workflow. We've got it all over the place. So you know, if you're not familiar with workflows today, get familiar with it. If you don't have your own workflows for your environment, get those ready. And then you can plug them into the uh, management services catalog and make them services. Hey, Martin, it's time for our performance topic. What do you have? So I want to talk about System Recovery Boost or SRB. Excellent. Great topic. What do you got? Well, I want to talk about early life experiences, which is funny because we've had it for at least two years now. But nevertheless, here we go. So the first thing to say is that it provides two different kinds of boosts for certain cases. And we'll talk about those cases in just a second. But the two kinds of boost are called speed boost and zip boost. And the purpose of speed boost is to take sub-capacity general purpose engines and turn them into full speed engines. So if you've got a 6XX model it'll turn it into a 7xx model of the same number of general purpose of engines. And ZipBoost will enable certain work that isn't ordinarily ZIP eligible to run on a ZIP under certain circumstances. And in addition to that, you can purchase temporary ZIP capacity, so even more work could end up running on ZIP well, that, that's really good. I mean, I like all those three things. It sounds like I've got some uh, capability that I can really tap into here for System Recovery Boost. Yeah. Now, obviously, the Speed Boost is not going to apply to people running on full speed engines, but Zip Boost certainly would do. Yeah, so there might be something for everybody, right? <laughs> there, there could very well be, because the things we're about to talk about, everybody does, at least occasionally. So this has come out in three essential stages, the original Z15 stage, and then some enhancements within the life of Z15, and some additional function with Z16. The original Z15 
function consisted of two what are termed classes. The first one is shutdown. So when you initiate the shutdown boost, you get up to 30 minutes of speed boost or zip boost or both. The second one is IPL and that gives you up to 60 minutes of both kinds of boosts. So the idea here is to speed up shutdown and to speed up IPL. So if you have to IPL, then the total outage time should be reduced, which I think is pretty handy. Yeah, I think it is. And for me, I always try to remember this as 30 down, 60 up. Yes. And then we have recovery process boost, which extends the boost capabilities to other classes of things. So, for example, structure recovery or loss of connectivity recovery. And then in C16, this was further extended for restarting certain middleware. So starting and stopping is the key thing we're doing with SRB and recovery process boost. I think we'll just use the term SRB for short to cover both kinds of boost. Yeah, okay. That makes sense for this particular section because I know there is another SRB, but we'll use that for this one, right? Meaning a, a system recovery boost. Yeah, let's not talk about the other SRB here. Yeah, exactly. Plenty to say about it, but not in this item. So I've actually written four blog posts over the last couple of years, which I consider based on my experience over these two years. The first one was called Really Starting Something. And as the title suggests, it was about how you can detect starts and stops of various things like address spaces, like LPARs, etc. from SMF. The second one is called SRB and SMF. That's a terribly imaginative title. And there I talk about the instrumentation in SMF 70 CPU activity records as it relates to SRB. And actually, one of the things that's worth sharing with you is that you can detect not only when your own LPAR, the record cutting LPAR, had a restart and used a boost, but also when other LPARs on the machine experience SRB. Now, there are some considerations here because I can tell exactly when boost period started and stopped for this LPAR, but I can only tell that other LPARs experienced boosts sometime within this LPAR's RMF interval. So one has to be a little bit careful about expectation there. Yeah. So in, in that blog post, did you did you mention anything for a system programmer to do like different SMF record collection? No, because there's very little you have to do. But let's talk about one of the considerations about the records uh, in the context of the third blog post. So that was called Third Times the Charm for SRB or Is It? Now, the consideration here is ordinarily RMF intervals are every, let's say, 15 minutes, regular as clockwork, apart from obviously shut down and start. When you enter a boost period or exit a boost period, however, we terminate the interval. So one has to be a bit careful about the intervals at the start and stop of boosts. 
And this third blog post really identifies a set of intervals from a real customer going through SRB. Well, actually going through a shutdown and a restart. And this leads me on to the fourth blog post, SRB and shutdown. So what I'm observing in a number of customers is that they will take advantage of IPL boost because that's automatic unless you turn it off but they're not typically going through shutdown boost and that's because you need to invoke a special procedure to actually initiate the shutdown boost which you don't have to do to initiate IPL boost. Yeah, so I can imagine that if you had to do a little bit something extra to grab it, to grab that 30 minutes on the extra shutdown, that would be worth to do it. And, you know, I think of that as leaving money on the table. If you don't initiate that, you know, you're, you're losing stuff that's that's just there and you could use. Yes, and in principle, both IPL and shutdown could be really quite intensive. So I think it might well matter. Yeah. The other thing to mention is that there have been new function APARs around the area of SMF 90 subtype 40, which does a good job of documenting SRB, and also around operator commands. Yeah, uh, we don't want those to go unnoticed, so we do have an SMP fix cat for those as well. So if you're interested in this function, go get the fix cat and install those uh, PTFs for those APARs. Sounds like a good idea. So let's wrap up on this item, but we've got a few parting thoughts. Yeah, so it's just not one and done. As you said, there's been stages that came in in Z15, more that came in in Z16. So this is definitely not a one and done type of technology. And it is always expanding if you want to think of it like that. I like technologies that aren't one and done. I like the idea that development responds to field experience and adjusts things and sandpapers off the rough corners if there are any. And actually, in this case, it's extended function as much as anything that's exciting about it. So the other thought is it's a really good idea to run an implementation project for SRB. So one of the things I didn't discuss was what you need to do about zip pool weights. So an LPAR that's undergoing a boost could use a lot of zip. So you'd better make sure that the other LPARs on the machine have adequate pool weights for the zip pool to protect against that sort of thing. And obviously, I think automation is going to be a key thing here, particularly automating the shutdown boost. And this is where something like GDPS can be really helpful. And I think finally, you're going to want to monitor the effectiveness and the resource usage and at least get your reporting up to speed when it comes to SRB. So a small project, I think, would be a good idea. Yeah, sounds like a project is good with some planning and some monitoring and even, I mean, in the world of performance, I think I I see things doing a before and after comparison too. This would be in place for that project too, right? Yeah, I think before and after is a good one. And in fact, I'd really love to hear from customers who implement SRB and tell us what you get. All right. Thanks, Martin. Martin, what's our topic for today? It's called stickiness. So let me ask you a question. 
What's brown and sticky? I don't know. A stick. <laughs> oh, you're so corny. No, if you, if you uh, got misdirected by that one and got upset, it's all in your brain, not ours. Anyway, this topic is not really about that joke. It's about the concept of stickiness or whether things you work with actually stick in your day-to-day life. And it's based on a blog post which we will link to in the show notes. Yeah, I like that blog post, Martin, because I have uh, opinions about this topic. So I was glad that we're going to talk about this in our podcast today. Funny enough, I have opinions about it too. Otherwise, I couldn't have written the post. Okay, so... I've experimented with lots of technologies over the years, and some of them have worked and stayed in the way I do things, and some of them, frankly, haven't. And I think there's some lessons to learn about what makes something, maybe a product or a practice, sticky, and what makes it fall away over time. So, in the post, I wrote about some key elements, and I gave a few examples. So the first one is the value of the thing. So when you consider a technology or practice, it has to provide enough value and be cheap enough, or at least the balance between the two has to be good enough. Now, when we talk about value, it's not necessarily financial value. It could be it makes my life better in some way. And it isn't necessarily strictly utilitarian. So, if I have a hobby, which I suppose I do, then the value in the hobby is just as valid as the value in terms of work productivity or personal productivity. So, for example, I could say that Raspberry Pi gives me endless hours of fun. It's not terribly useful in my life at the moment, but it meets the criterion of good value and being very cheap. But in general, when I talk about value, It's one of four things. It's possibly productivity. It could be reliability. And reliability is quite important to me because as a human, I make lots of errors and it'd be nice not to have the opportunity to make those errors. And similarly, enhancement in terms of there are things I can't do, like generate massive files very fast. So, the value could be in, in being able to do things I otherwise can't do. And again, there's a theme here because it's all related, isn't it? A- automation. So do I even need to be trying to do the thing? Can I find something that provides enough value in terms of stopping me having to do whatever the thing might be? Yeah, but you know what you didn't talk about when you talked about value, and it's something that means a lot to me, is There's a lot of value based on building a prior investment that I might have had in something. So if I've invested a lot of time into something and it makes me happy to use it and I am just about not ready to upheave all of that prior investment that I've made, that sense of familiarity gives me a lot of value. And and I just wanted to throw an example out here because I just got a new Samsung phone And my son told me, why are you using that Verizon messaging app? That doesn't come with the phone. You should be using the Samsung messaging app because that was really built for your phone. And this Verizon thing is, you know, just your provider. And so I said, okay, you know, you're right. So I took the Samsung. I I was using that as my messaging app. 
And the next thing you know, I like can't do the same things I wanted. I didn't like it. I couldn't customize it. I couldn't maneuver around inside of it. And I was like, man, after a couple of days, I'm like, this is a bad messaging app and I message way too much. So I had this prior investment that I had put into this Verizon messaging app. I immediately went back to it and I was like, oh, I felt like I was at home. I was able to do things much more productively. I knew how to maneuver in it so well. And I just, it was so foreign to use that Samsung app. And, and I didn't like that. So that value really needs, we need to talk about this prior investment that you've personally made into it, right? Oh, I, I think that's right. I think it's a very good example. And actually, there are elements of that example in some of the other criteria later on. So after value comes completeness. Now, many people probably don't care about the completeness thing, but to me, as a technocratic kind of guy I am very hot on features and what features are missing and to be honest when I play with the technology I quite often find there's a lot missing which most people probably wouldn't see and therefore maybe not be important but it's to me so if a technology is obviously missing things that matter to me I'm less likely to adopt but you know Technologies have a life of their own, so you might find early on that the technology isn't feature complete. I still think there's value, despite the irritation of seeing features missing, of actually adopting things somewhat early in, in the life cycle of the technology. And I think a lot of that speaks to attitude of whoever's developing the technology and maybe the community. So quite a good example of this is Siri Shortcuts, which started out as something called Workflow. And it started out with much less function than it has now. But the trajectory in terms of enhancements has been really, really nice to see. And it helps build a lot of faith. So it might not start out complete, but it's getting there. And I think one of the other factors about completeness is that the first stab at creating something is something I can probably get my head around and learn how to use. And then when enhancements do come along, I can actually mentally assimilate because I'm the kind of person who creeps learning around the edges of what I already know. So, so completeness is really a, a journey. And as I say, it's attitude in terms of development that it's the difference between something that's not feature complete to begin with, but will become so, and something that will always be featuring complete. Yeah, and I was thinking about this as well for completeness, because I remember when we added chapter markers into the podcast, and you're like, oh, these chapter markers are great, and you could see them on Apple. It took me forever to find something on Android that had chapter markers in it, and it just wasn't complete. So I went through so many podcast apps until I finally got to Podcast Attic and they had chapter markers. I'm like, yeah, this is a complete app. So now I stuck with that one. Yeah. And sometimes these are slow trains coming, really, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to really cast around amongst the many competing apps in the app space yeah. to find something that is nearly complete or has the right developer attitude. So next criterion is usability and immediacy. The technology has to be actually usable. So quite a good example of something that really wasn't was an early attempt at push button automation of mine. So I took an external numeric keypad 
and I programmed the buttons on it to help me edit, indeed, this podcast and other audio with Audacity. The trouble with a numeric keypad is you have to remember which button does what. And to cut a long story short, I ended up trying to create a paper template um, to stick around the buttons. And for anything that's got more than two buttons across or two buttons down, the middle buttons are really hard to put on a template that just goes around the outside. So that was a case of funding my way towards trying to remember what these wretched buttons did. So that's not really very usable. Then along came Stream Deck, which is another button pad, but the buttons have images and text on them. And if you program them right, it will actually tell you what the function of the button is. So that's something that's got usability and immediacy in the way that my previous attempt doesn't. So that's one example of usability and me rejecting something in favour of something else with more usability. Yeah. So uh, you, you had mentioned, you know, usability and, and it's just got to be maneuverable for me. If I can't get around it pretty easily, pretty early, or if I'm looking at a language and I'm just, you know, having a really hard time trying to grasp some of the concepts and it's hard to find doc or support or, you know, anything I can find on it. Yeah, it's got to be immediate. Yeah, this is all part of the user experience, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The next topic within this is reliability. So a question worth asking yourself about technology is how infrequently must it fail for it to be usable? So if you, say, press a button and 1% of the time it doesn't work, that's possibly acceptable depending on what it is. But at 10%, then it's worse than useless. Now, as I say, it does depend on what it is. So, for example, if your car fails to start 1% of the time, personally, I'd find that unacceptable. If my automation where I ask the device to change my watch face fails 10% of the time, that's irritating, but it's not necessarily a showstopper. So, reliability is dependent on a number of things, but I think it's kind of important. and and. Having mentioned shortcuts just now, I have to say that one fails the reliability test uh, under lots of circumstances, but it's getting a lot better. So again, what trajectory are we on plays out with reliability as well. Yeah, in the and, and how we have different standards for reliability. So those were good examples that you brought up there. The next one is setup complexity. So I personally veer towards complexity in the things I use, which is not really a surprise to anybody. Most people, though, I think would like things to be simple to set up. Um, but as I say, I veer towards tolerability and extensibility. And again, we're back to user experience, because a good user experience makes it easy to get going with something, but gives you a high degree of tolerability or extensibility for those of us who, who need it. Yeah, I like this one, too, the setup complexity, you know, because, you know, Martin, as a, you know, Zero System Programmer type, I like to make sure things are easy to configure and use on, you know, ZOS. And so this setup complexity plays such a large role for, for everything. 
um, when we get into the stickiness topic. So I, I really did like that you brought up this category in your blog post. So I think that's a good one. And I think good defaults is part of the ease setup. Yes. Not all of it by, by a long way, but uh, it's part of it. It is. So, you know, there are technologies that I really do rely on and have built into my life because they meet the criteria for value, for completeness, for usability and immediacy, and for reliability and for setup complexity. And I think good examples of those are going to be things like drafts, where much of my text really does start, whether it's on Mac or Apple Watch or iPhone or iPad, or even over the web these days. And similarly, OmniFocus, my task manager, which is in all those places as well. Those have got all the features I'm looking for according to the five criteria. And Stream Deck, as I already mentioned, the Bush button automation is very good in, in that regard. And a bunch of other things. There are a bunch of technologies that have really stuck with me. But, I mean, I have to say there are things that have fallen by the wayside over the many years. And I won't necessarily list them now, but I think the point is that technologies aren't necessarily forever. Now, when I wrote the blog post, it was early 2022. It'd be interesting to see how my view of what is still sticky, what has come, one of a better phrase, unstuck in the year, what, what those things will be and how, how that plays out. Yep. So I, I think this was a, an interesting topic, and I, and I did like the point you brought up. Um, and I, I know that we almost went with the title of this podcast episode just because we like this topic so much. So interesting. It would have been a good bait and switch, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have. So, as we come to the end of this episode, let's talk about the places we expect to be in the future. Yeah, and the, and the first one on my list is, again, Share. I mean, I love, we had Share in 2022. So I'll be at Share in Columbus, Ohio, August 22 through 26. And I'll be there as well. And this time, I actually have a presentation to give, I'm very pleased to say. So this is Zip, Capacity and Performance, and it's a presentation I've revised, or as I like to say, refurbished, quite a number of times over recent years. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, that sounds a good one. I am doing a lot of presentations, as usual, and a lot of labs. I hope the lab machine works this time. Um, but the one I'm most excited about is one that we have never done before at Share, and that is ZOS on Z16. So that one is a is a exciting one. I I need to get ready for August. Sounds like a goodie. So we've got blog activity there, Martin. Let me jump right into mine. I've had at least four blogs since our last podcast episode. So one of them was newest orderable features on ZOS 2.5 only, you know, where we mentioned some of that data set file system information. I've got some IP addresses that are changing for the IBM software delivery servers. That's already happened in the past. But if you haven't seen that or recognized it, you might want to take a look at that. Host names are not changing, just IP addresses before anybody gets their dander up. Okay, um, also we had pre-announced actually the removal of the custom pack ISPF server pack date, you know, and again, and then we officially announced it. So again, that ISPF old-fashioned server pack removal date across all of the ShopZ software we have for ZOS, the whole stack, July 10th, 2022. 
And then the last one was one that I released concurrent with the ZOS, uh, actually for the, with the Z16, and it's about ZOS. Putting it on Z16, early quick information that you might want to look at called Joe Friday ZOS Positioning for IBM Z16, just the basics, just early information, quick read. And I've mentioned already four SRB-related posts in the performance topic, so I won't go through the names again, but all of the blog posts, both Marner's and mine, will have as links in the show notes. But I've also done some other blog posts, so we talked about stickiness in the topics topic, so the blog posts related to that, there will be a link for that as well. Another one I did is called Clippy question mark, not that clippy exclamation mark. Why am I reading out public situation? I don't know. But then, anyway, it's all about adventures and automating using clipboards on iOS and Mac. And I have another episode in the thrilling series called Engineering. So this is Engineering Part 6. Defined capacity capping considered harmful. There's an obscure reference in that title, of course. Ah, everything you do, Martin, is obscure sometimes. <laughs> so, of course, we absolutely welcome your feedback. Um, how to contact us? I am M. Wally on Twitter. I also have been, you know, doing a lot of interactions with people on LinkedIn. I absolutely love it. So contact us any of the ways that you'd like. And I'm Martin underscore Packer at uk.ibm.com for email and Martin Packer on all the socials. So it goes. Hey, Martin. So what's this thing to the max? Tell me about it. Right. So I'm the proud owner of a new computer, which is a Mac Studio Max, which isn't actually the most indulgent computer you can buy in the range. That would be a Mac Studio. A Mac Studio? That's staying in. A Mac Studio Ultra, which is about twice the price. Um, but anyway, it's a very powerful Apple M1 based desktop computer. And I've never actually had a desktop based Apple Mac before. So it's a whole new experience. But it's worth talking about in the context of podcasting, actually, because one of the key things it brings me is less fan noise which hopefully is going to make noise reduction a thing of the past, well, more or less. And it's quite interesting because no matter what you do to this machine, it always goes 1100 RPM in fan terms, even if it's doing nothing. But more to the point, if it's really working hard, it's still 1100 RPM, which is pretty quiet, actually. So that's nice. Hmm. It's also enabled me to get a more or less permanent recording setup. So that's nice because that's one of the inhibitors to doing anything is set up and take down. And actually with the noise reduction, it should make production of podcast episodes a little bit quicker. Not hugely so, but a little bit quicker. So it's a very nice machine to have. It's kind of future-proofed because I tend to spec things that way. And when I'm not using it for recording it's actually a very nice programming environment so that's where we're getting to with the term to the max terrible pun but i rather like it of course oh yeah i know 
If you didn't have a, a terrible pun, then then who would you be there, Martin? <laughs> well, well, exactly. Life might. So be I much guess you now way. have. Well, well, I mean, <laughs> so given that it's a permanent setup now, I mean, I would imagine that in your house you now have a studio in your house, right? That's that's what it is now. Heavily quotation marked. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll get away with um, putting all sorts of sandproofing ar- around it. The, the so-called historical committee, as podcasters tend to call it, probably would not allow it. But uh, yeah, it's getting as close as I think I'm ever going to get to to having a permanent recording setup. So we get there in the end. Well, yeah, well, I'm just glad to be back in Poughkeepsie because I can be in the Poughkeepsie recording studio. Shout out to Jeff Bisty for doing that for us in Poughkeepsie. So I'm in the recording studio, and, and when you're in Poughkeepsie, we need to both be here in this studio room. It, it is rather nice. That, that would be rather fun. I'm still trying to work out what on earth you're going to do with eight tracks when there's only one of you. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm, I'm figuring out how to eliminate them or, and actually get the right one, so I'm having fun. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs>